and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today, I'm chatting with Tim Garland. So, it's more sax to the max time. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode three of series four of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. Welcome to you wherever you are, and if you're a first-time listener, you're of course most welcome. And if you are a first-timer, why not join in all the many millions making a donation to our worthy, COVID-busting, live music-making fundraiser as we look to make recordings and put on shows despite the limitations. If you want to become a jazz god benefactor, just click on our website or our Twitter or wherever else we are on social media uh, and click onto our GoFundMe page. Every fiver really helps. Now, talking of jazz gods, my special guest today is a British jazz demigod. A Grammy winner, member of the late great Chick Courier's band Origin, deliverer of at least 16 stonking albums in his own name, and contributor to so many more. A UK jazz ambassador the world over, an orchestral giant, an arranging argonaut, and a titanic tenorist, it can only be Tim Garland. Tim, hello! How are you? <laughs> well, I'm in awe of what I've just heard you say. I'm fine, thank you. And it's great to, to be talking to you and to have met you. <laughs> well, listeners, what's most exciting about this is that we're actually in physical proximity. I could touch Tim's knee. Um, I'm not sure he would like that. Uh, but I'm delighted because we're sitting in his uh, fabulous Oak studio here just outside Watford. So what's the story of this, Tim? Well, I've been here for about a year and a half and um, we were looking for a place uh, where I could have a studio because I thought, well, I've spent nearly all of my career traveling far and wide uh, to people. I was thinking, well, maybe I could get people to come to me uh, and concentrate a little bit more on the you know production music side and, uh, and get good quality recordings of uh, not just uh, established names, but helping out some youngsters as well. And um, so I'm fortunate enough with Oak Gable here, you know, we've got the facilities um, within easy reach of my kitchen kettle uh, (laughs) to actually make an album. (laughs) And of course, it's been a lifesaver during COVID. I had no idea, of course, when this was built that very shortly afterwards we'd be in lockdown and and this is all I'd have. So it was a bit like building Noah's Ark, you know. It's a fantastic space. But what I'll do, I'll come back, if you don't mind, and talk to you a bit more about the studio and and, and how you're using it and what your hopes are for the future in a moment. But like all podcasts that we do from the Watford Jazz Junction, everyone wants to know the backstory. So what was your journey into jazz from littleness? From littleness, uh, so I was in Canterbury and um, with an older brother and sister, they would bring home records, yes, vinyl records, and uh, all kinds of things from... uh, I remember hearing Keith Jarrett and some early sort of ECM albums. And there were lots and lots of prog rock things going on in the house, like Yes and Genesis and, you know, Bill Bruford. Of course, I ended up in Bill's band for a while. And so by the time I was 15 or 16, I'd heard a lot of that music. And uh, my father, being a very keen cellist and classical lover, uh, I had had such a diverse musical experience up to that point, and there was a, a, a local clarinetist who lived just down the road called Tony Coe. <laughs> Not a <laughs> the bad one. The only one and only Tony Coe. And um, I remember playing at a wine bar doing a gig. I was underage, actually, because I think I was still only 15 or 16. And I think it was my first gig, in inverted commas, I'd ever done. And it turned out to be Tony's local 
And Tony came in, uh, and I was kind of wanted to sort of just disappear under the ground, you know. But of course, Tony was really sweet and really encouraging. In fact, to this day, uh, I know that there are some sort of Tony Co influences in the way that he plays, which which are still with me, you know, because when you're that age, those, you're so impressionable that the those early influences, some of them stick forever. Um, so it was that. I mean, you can't really say Canterbury scene because I don't think Tony was ever sort of considered part of that um, sort of prog rock Canterbury scene. But by the time I moved to uh, London yeah. uh, and studied composition at the Guildhall School of Music, I'd had two or three years of um, quite serious jazz listening. Mm. Uh, I actually gave up the saxophone whilst I was at uh, college because I was just studying composition. There was no time to do both. <gasps> I know, I know. But that's where I got... Uh, all my great love and interest uh, and experience with orchestral music and mm. orchestration. Before I left the Guildhall School of Music, I took up the saxophone again. I was so desperately sad. I wanted to join, you know, <laughs> kind of try and join the dots a bit. And I think for about 20 years or 25 years after that was a slow progression in joining together all of these disparate elements that I so loved. So yeah. how can one join orchestral music with jazz how can one maybe look at roots folk music and jazz which i did with a band called lamas uh in the early 90s basically that eclectic nature i i not that i'm into star signs but i'm a libran and apparently <laughs> libra is all about balancing lots of different aspects and i think well that's typical of me uh, i'm much more likely to uh, gravitate towards you know trying to use a string quartet in a jazz situation yeah. rather than just go around playing in a standard, you know, jazz quartet. After Lamas, well, actually about the same time, I joined Ronnie Scott's band. So I was still 23 years old and Ronnie heard me play. Uh, Dick Pierce, the trumpet player, uh, had, I think, had a bike accident or something and was out of action for several months. Right. So I sort of took over and um, we had this stint of a sort of having a two tenor band. So... That was a baptism by fire, really, on a different level. So I found myself playing at Ronnie's a lot, uh, standing next to Ronnie and in his band, playing unimaginably fast tempos um, and sort of cutting my teeth that way. Yeah. And that was great because then at the time the staff you know, would recognise me and I would be able to go in and just hang around at the back and listen to whoever was on. So, I mean, the people I got to hear, you know, George Coleman and Bob Berg, you know, and I mean, a lot of the people who were around at the time, I heard Joe Henderson play, um, you know, some of these people, of course, they are not with us anymore. Right. And, um, you know, I remember hearing Stan Getz, and, and that was a huge thing for me, because I, I wasn't really a Stan Getz fan, but then I heard him live, and I was just so bowled over by the poise that the guy had, you know? Yeah. There's something in every player that you can take as nutrition, uh, which helps you grow as, uh, as a player yourself, I believe. And I'm still doing that today. I'm yeah. still, you know, still a student. So you, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty good lineage and not, not all of it uh, happenstance and luck, but to, to have Tony Coe at that early, early seminal stage when you're sort of thinking, this is fun. Yeah. Right through to Sally next to Ronnie Scott. And, you know, people that have listened to this podcast will now know, thanks to James Pearson, that, that Ronnie was a serious player. Mm. You're now a fully established, you know, player on, 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 on the world scene. Do 
Do you still feel that sort of sense of responsibility yourself now to sort of nurture, mentor, connect, give people those opportunities? Yes, that's really kind of dawning on me more. Having taught for many years uh, at the Royal Academy of Music and uh, quite a lot at the Guildhall as well, where you see these uh, young players and uh, the, my biggest reason for teaching, actually, is that I get my ass kicked by those young players because they, you know, you're listening to them and you're thinking to yourself, "How old are you?" You know, they've got such an incredible amount together. But then you do realise, you know, you catch you catch yourself in the mirror, you know, and you think, "Oh yes, okay, I am indeed old enough to be this young chap's dad." And you think, "Yeah, that must count for something." And of course, I have toured a great deal. There are lessons which have taken me a long time to learn, um, which you can't just learn from watching YouTube clips. And they are quite tough and quite often they're not just to do with music, but they're about living the life, you know, managing to keep sane, pay your bills, continue in a life of, what's the word, integrity, I suppose, when it comes to what you love. And how far are you willing to go in the commercial world, for example, to to stretch the parameters of what you do as an artist to you know, make a good living for yourself, mm-hmm. you know? All of these things, because I think it's important to play the long game. And that's what I've learned, I suppose. You want to be able to ask yourself the question in 10, 20 years' time, how do I want to sound as a musician? Where do I want to be? Yeah. What do I want to be known for? And that umbilical cord to the divine, if we can get new age for a second, that's really what it feels like. It's like, what really made you start playing music? That spark of undeniable love and passion when you were, I don't know, 13. Is it, where, where is it when you're in your 50s? Is mm. it still there? I just remember hanging out with John Taylor who, of course, is no longer with us, and other people like Ralph Towner, Paul Motion, Chick, of course, Joe Lovano, who I've known for many, many years. And these people, to me, still carry that same teenage passion, you know. You just say to yourself, yeah, that's how I want to be (laughs) when I reach that age. The, um, yeah, James Morrison, um, uh, to, to name drop on our own podcast um, of some of the lovely guests we've had in the past, but he was talking about playing with Dizzy Gillespie mm. and saying he always seemed to just have a party around him, but that sense of joy for the music was just there. Mm. The sense of joy that, that you carry forwards, do you feel that's something you, you have to remember or it's just as soon as you pick up the horn, it's like, oh, this is why I do it? Most of the time, it's the latter, yeah. I, I wish I could say all of the time, but yeah. um, th- there are, as one gets older, of course, one gets a lot of knocks of one type or another, and you have to keep picking yourself up and brushing yourself down. But there have been times where as soon as you start playing, especially if you're playing with musicians you really appreciate and, and love, uh, but everything drops away, and you know all of that is sort of voluntary amnesia <laughs> kicks yeah, in. Yeah. And you're just in the moment. I mean, particularly if you're on tour and you've just maybe travelled for 10 hours or something and you're just feeling rubbish. And then you get on stage and, and it's just like a, a lovely cool shower, you know, and the music starts and there you are in the place that you should be in life, wherever that is geographically. Well, that sets me up nicely for a question I really wanted to ask you, which is I haven't really ever asked it to anyone else, but for you, what have been the best times in jazz, and actually, what have been your worst times? I think some of the best times when I was working with Joe Locke and Jeff Keezer, 
mm. um, in Storm's Nocturnes. And when I first went over to New York and I was working with Joe, because it was so exciting and new. Everyone I met, of course, was, was new. And you get to play with these wonderful rhythm sections that just are so propulsive and dynamic and musical. And I think I was able to kind of bring home quite a lot of that spirit. So when I was, I was able to energize myself and others around me, um, forming some of the other groups that I did here. So working with Gwilym Simcock, for example, um, he was a student I met at the Royal Academy and I knew he was something special. We want, went on to play music for, must have been about eight or nine years after that. When you get that level of rapport, I think that's so special and perhaps slightly underrated because let's just uh, say everyone can play and most of the people you would be mixing with are practically virtuosos of what they do. That's still nothing compared to having a rapport between you where most of the magic is created not through what one person does but what you do together. And um, more, more recently, Jason Rebello, who, of course, I've known for 30 years. Jason yeah. and I are doing quite a lot together. Fabulous pianist. And so um, this is a long answer to your question, isn't it? But it's a good one because the, the, the good times keep coming. <laughs> I think, I mean, it is without doubt the case that when I first started to work with Chick, that is something I will never forget. Um, my first official gig was at the stable, Stables in Wavendon. Oh, just up the road. Up the road, um, because he was invited to play uh, at the Stables. This is Chick, uh, with Jeff Ballard and Abishai Cohen, and I was sort of the invited guest to make up the quartet. And it turned out to be a bit of an audition gig, really, uh, which I passed. Uh, and, you know, after that was the beginning of 17 or 18 years of working with Chick, on and off, of course, as, as famously, he had all kinds of ensembles. But uh, working with someone like that, the sense of time and groove was so strong and self-assured that it almost felt as if it had its own gravitational pull. You know, so if you were in the vicinity of the piano when Chick was playing it, you would feel almost like there was a magnetic physical pull towards the piano. What was happening, of course, in musical terms is that his sense of groove was so deep that it would influence your musical choices, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I found it quite easy, first of all, to play with him because his style was familiar to me. So that, that the, that's the irony. It took him a while to get used to me. Why would he be familiar with my style? <laughs> you know, I was a newbie. But uh, I knew so much about his work and his playing that it actually we, we got together very quickly. From then on, almost every tour I went on with Chick was a high point and almost every gig would have been several moments within it where you just are staggered by what's going on on stage. Just standing at the side, listening to what these guys are achieving and the, and the energy and the love and the commitment. It's 110%. And uh, you would carry that into your life, I think. And that's when perhaps you can be a real ambassador for good because you're on a different level of vibration somehow. You know, these people, you, you mentioned Dizzy, you know, there are others who like that, who, who carry with them a sense of um, uh, unearthly magnetism. I think Stevie Wonder is like that. Not that I know him, I haven't met him once, but, um, you know. And there are others outside of jazz who carry that. And that's my aspiration. I think on the downside of some of the worst times I've experienced, it's probably when 
you know that some things should have been good and were spoilt by something. And it might have been maybe the PA going wrong. And that terrible sense of frustration that you're responsible for the gig as the band leader and no one is sounding good and they're all feeling miserable and you know it's beyond your control. <laughs> you know, that is awful. Uh, and there have also been many times where I feel as if I've disappointed myself in thinking that I could play better than I could and, and it just, was, just wasn't happening. Yeah. I've kind of learned to be compassionate myself, with myself then because those times are the times that make you a better teacher. When a, a student comes to you more or less in tears because of, they've heard themselves back after being recorded and they thought they were so much better, I know what that's like, you know, and you think, well, that's, that's quite good. What you're showing there is the kind of commitment to your art that you need which will make you good enough in the end. But I'm 54 now and I feel as if I'm just still kind of halfway there, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic answer. Uh, you get eight points. Um, so, talking about points, uh, would you like to play my new feature, Tim Garland? The new feature is called the Tim Garland 12 to 1 Tenor Shakedown. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, I've got no idea what's about to happen. You just give me an answer. Lester Young or Coleman Hawkins? Oh, goodness. Oh, no. Um, can't I say both? No. All right, well... Probably Coleman Hawkins then, I guess. Michael Brecker or Sonny Stitt? Oh, that would have to be Michael Brecker. I'm a man of my time. <laughs> ben Webster or Johnny Griffin? <laughs> oh, now that's hard. Probably Ben Webster. Uh, Rollins or Coltrane? Coltrane, I should think, although I do love Rollins to bits. Albert Isler or Pharaoh Saunders? <laughs> oh, you know, I don't even really have an opinion on that, but I think probably Pharaoh. Nice. And finally, in this preliminary round, uh, Dexter Gordon or Stan Getz? Oh, <laughs> now that's another hard one. <laughs> it's a, that's very unfair, really, because um, I would say Stan because I'm, I'm more familiar with his music. Right. Dexter's sound. Well, they're all giants that you've mentioned there, haven't you? Absolutely. <laughs> Got to keep you on your toes. Right, next round. Hawkins or Brecker? Oh, well, Brecker. Oh, we've, we've, got a, we've got our first semi-finalist. Ben Webster or John Coltrane? Coltrane. And Pharaoh or Stan Getz? Stan. Nice. And because this is the jazz land, I think we'll stop it there. But you've ended up selecting a beautiful trio. Yeah. We've got Michael Brecker, John Coltrane and Stan Getz. There you go. <laughs> which in any tenorist's mind ain't a bad representation of the talent that, that's there. But of course you stand on the, the shoulders of giants whenever you pick up a tenor. Yes. How much is the influence and legacy of these players in, in what you do? Is it not even for questioning or is there, are there some very specific people that you've lent on in the years? Uh, it is without question that every note you play, but you know, there's a legacy going back to you know, Charlie Parker, in some cases like Sidney Bechet, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's so important that we remember the music, uh, the musical heritage, the vast majority of it being, being from the uh, black African-American experience. Uh, and even in my case, where so much of the music I'm influenced by is, you know, classical influence, uh, there's a lot of European sort of ECM, you yeah. know, stuff. Uh, there was a time where you could say that the Miles Davis band, uh, almost every direction that jazz was taking, 
in some way had been approached by Miles's band. You know, one of my favourite albums of Miles is uh, Water Babies, which right. isn't one of the most well-known. Yeah. But to me, it was sort of um, giving birth, continue the baby's analogy, of um, some of the ECM music. You know, the way that it was recorded with a little bit of reverb on the drums, Tony Williams playing drums. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. way that it was so, so open, the way that Wayne's compositions were both sophisticated and incredibly open, not wanting to sound like head, solo head, that kind of thing, wanting to make sure that everyone was throwing something into the pot improvisationally. So the drummer, but of course, you know, with Tony and then Jack afterwards, that it was an equal thing that you were no longer talking about, you know, a saxophone player playing, you know, millions of notes over a burning rhythm section, which were essentially accompanists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was there accompanying everyone else. To me, this wonderful blend that you can achieve between modern composition and that kind of openness, that to me is a kind of golden egg that I'm always looking for in different ways. Yeah. Now, I wonder if I can bring you back to the space where we are so you have been a busy boy over lockdown, that's for sure. I know you've been doing some stuff for yourself, but I really, really want to know more about this encounter series that you've set up. I mean, what, how, this is not half impressive, considering oh. you told me your studio wasn't even completed until lockdown just about started. Yeah, that's right. Well, we, uh, I, I was lucky, I made it the size that it was basically as, as, as big as we could get it, not because of recording so much, but because yeah. of the idea of rehearsing. Uh, all of that became impossible um, because of COVID. But obviously with the piano we've got here, a wonderful new Yamaha, and uh, all of the gear that has been sort of 20 years in the making, really get, getting all this stuff together. And because I've done quite a lot of production music, which has paid some of the bills, I thought, wouldn't it be great to, rather than do another lockdown project where the musicians were using iPhones and just gathering around one microphone, that to me, I'd seen several examples of people, and it was very quaint, but actually the musicians were doing themselves down in a way. Wouldn't it be great to have something where the uh, cinematography was so good that everyone was lifted, that everyone sounded and looked their best, and it wasn't just a recorded gig, but it was a bespoke jazz on film, you know, video on demand kind of experience that you could hopefully in 10 years time come back to and say, wow, this was beautifully done with a bit of magic. So uh, the first one we got together was just a trio with Kit Downs and Norma Winston. Wow. And uh, we were talking about it and then they announced lockdown was about to happen. And so we brought it forward two weeks and I just said to Norma come over now or it might never happen and so we just came and we, we played managed to get a wonderful crew uh, of Dan and Andy both on um, the camera side and the and the audio side uh, and I, it has to be said without the help of those guys the technical help it wouldn't look anything like it does they're both amazing at what they do after that first one which we called Winter Encounter got the idea of Let's get some other people around. Here um, in Kings Langley, it's very close. There's so many musicians that are very close to us. Even during lockdown, this place is big enough for us to uh, space out. Yeah, enough, yeah, yeah. Which is why most of the camera angles, you can only see one musician at a time because none uh, of us are close enough to each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> makes sense. We, so we had Leanne Carroll second and uh, Ayana Witter-Johnson came in uh, and that was with Jason Rebello on piano. We kept these as, as trios. And then, of course, the idea started to develop. This was something which could grow into a catalogue where musicians quite often would meet for the first time. So... 
So who have you pulled, pulled together then? Who hasn't met each other? Oh, say uh, Natalie Williams and Ant Law hadn't worked together. Oh, really? Ever. Yeah, Ayana. Um, well, I'd never played with Ayana, and she'd never met Jason. Amazing. Um, so we just had Cleveland Watkiss. I'm not sure if Cleveland had ever met Orlando. So Orlando Le Fleming's just come back from New York after 17 years of being away. Right. And I got him to come and play with the guys. So we had... Uh, that oh, was John wow. Turville, uh, Asaf Circus, myself, Cleveland Watkins, and Orlando. So that group had definitely never played before. Although, you know what the jazz scene is like. You may have done some casual session with one person before, and everyone kind of knows each other from jazz awards or yeah, festivals. Yeah. And the amount of times people have said, oh, it's finally great to finally play with you, you know, it's, it's after knowing you for 30 years or something. And you realize that this, what's so precious about this community is that we need more and more opportunities to mix and match. In the same way that some of the most uh, magical uh, moments in music I've had have been to do with rapport. It's not what one individual brings necessarily, it's the chemistry between the musicians and what they create together and how much the audience can feel that. Yeah. And it brings that community in close. In that same way, we need opportunities for our jazz community to keep close, um, both in terms of generation gap, uh, in terms of genre, in terms of our shared direction and our shared values. Yeah. You know, and I just think that um, there have been so many wonderful, noble attempts, especially festivals and things like that, to make these things happen. What I wanted to make sure of was that every musician knew that by the time the product goes out, that it had had a chance to be edited and mixed and was sort of beautified, if you like. <laughs> because obviously when you have an encounter, it's rather like you, you're on a tightrope with no safety net. You know, things will go wrong because yeah, you're yeah. playing them for the first time, you know. So the idea then is that we um, do two or three takes of things. We can, uh, as I say, we can edit. And if there are any train wrecks, <laughs> you know, you don't have to put up Smoothed with Smoothed out by magic. Yeah, because you want in 10 years' time, as I say, you want to go back to something like this and think, yes, this was a great experience and it showed a particular kind of magic. It shows the vulnerability and honesty, of course, mm. because as you can see, most of us are in this, the same room here. So you can't just replace one thing that one person plays because there's whatever they've done is on all of the mics in the room, you know, yeah, so yeah. it has to be honest. We do our best um, not to wear headphones, so it sort of looks a cross between a, a record session and an actual gig. And the camera angles, you know, they can go everywhere. The one we did before with Cleveland, we had six different cameras. Fancy. And um, I mean, these things cost, and I'm very lucky that the Spring Encounter series, and there are five concerts, uh, we've just done the third one, um, I got some Arts Council funding for that, which was... The Watford Jazz Junction loves the Art Council. Loves the Art Council. Just on record. Carry on, Tim. <laughs> well, I mean, it saved, you know, my life um, in a way because I felt so terribly scared yeah. for my friends who had lost all their work and they weren't the ones that were doing lots of writing or had royalties coming in, etc. I mean, even their teaching gigs in schools were cancelled. So you just looked around and thought, what on earth are these people going to do? This was before the furlough thing kicked in for the first six months. It was truly frightening. So I would be standing in this big studio feeling 
you know, extremely lucky. But it was a bit like I'd created a party and no one came, you know, <laughs> standing in this big space. What can I do to help? You know, and um, so the first three I just paid for myself. Um, I mean, to get a great cinematographer with all his cameras, that does cost. But it was just so worth it. Yeah. And so by the time we approached the Arts Council, it was a proven formula. Yeah, yeah. So my idea, I'm hoping, is that there will be a summer encounters and an autumn encounters. It doesn't have to be done here. Um, Oak Gable Studio is a great resource, but perhaps we could take over a venue in Watford and do an encounter well. and, you know, and, and have a <laughs> yeah. live audience once again. And well, that was what I was going to ask you about because, I mean, I've, I've watched some of them. You, um, you sent me through some links and it's been fantastic to watch. The, the thing that I take away from actually all of the musicians, you've got wonderful people playing, you know, like Yaz Ahmed as well, as yeah. you mentioned, that is the intimacy that you get, that, that connection. Yeah. But, of course, the give and the take of that is, of course, there's no audience. Mm. So there's a... There's a sort of line to be met, isn't there, that you're doing something that feels beautiful, it's got great integrity, and it seems a really honest performance, and there's joy pulsing yeah. through all the ones I've seen anyway. Oh, that's so nice of you to say. Yeah, but it's true, which is impressive, <laughs> because yeah. you're actually playing for yourselves, but knowing that your audience may be there in the future, but right now, it's about that making the music in the immediacy. That yes. surely comes down to connections, melting pots, finding a, you know, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that inner sense of jazz truth or buzz or I th yes all of those things and trust okay. i think because okay. if you've got like the, the probably the central component in the music so far has been the piano and whoever is playing it yeah. and uh, when you've got great piano players you know there has been uh kit down Bello, uh, john turville yeah. uh, so far not 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 too shabby no and that, and that will of course increase and in every case you have to be uh, careful in your selection, knowing that there will be a lot of um, natural empathy going on. Everyone wants the same result. Sure. Everyone has felt a huge release in, ah, oh, I'm in the same room playing with real human beings. <laughs> you know, it's been really palpable. And even now, when things start to open up and people are starting to gig again, this I hope, with to the bottom of my heart, is somewhere where people can really feel as if whatever they want to do is encouraged and supported and made valid. I mean, we've got uh, Deschanel Gordon coming in quite soon, so obviously he's one of the younger guys. Yeah. Mark Mondesi is going to be on drums. Um, Matt Ridley on bass. You see, these guys, I'm not, I'm not sure if they know each other at all. <laughs> Tim has called, they're coming. Well, uh, yeah, this is the thing. I, I, I know there's a level of trust. I know it's going to be good. Yeah. And um, to me, it gives enormous joy because uh, I've felt like a caged animal, you know, having so many years of international travel and gigs and all of a sudden that's all gone. And, you know, you think, well, what can I do? I am in a situation now where I can do something. And uh, some of the things where if you're on boards and committee meetings and stuff, I always get a bit tongue-tied at those. You wouldn't believe it listening to me now, <laughs> would you? But I'd, I'd never feel... Uh, I get phased by the uh, some of the planning issues, etc. But when it comes to actually making the music, having human bodies in a room um, and sort of allocating jobs and organising a band, that I can do. <laughs> so yeah, 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 what can yeah. I do to help? I'll do this. <laughs> well, I'm jolly glad you have. And they're, they're really worth a, a watch and a listen. Um, because as, as Tim says, uh, and... I don't think you can say it enough. The, the quality of, 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 the, of the video 
matches that of the audio and, and it's unusual um, and, and it's great because of it. Um, so ahead of this interview, I was listening to some of your back catalogue. I wasn't able to get through it all because we, we only sort of agreed to chat last week and I've, mm. I've listened to you obviously some of it, but I haven't listened to everything. Um, so I've had this sort of Tim Garland jump dive into a pool of Garlandness. Um, and it's been really interesting how it sort of made me feel and what I've thought about. And I've sort of come up, I always have a set question. Mm. And so this is my set question after listening to your, your back catalogue, so to speak, and certainly the albums in your own name. The natural world and all its chaos versus the arranged precision of great music. Discuss. <laughs> so the initial, you're quite right. If you look at the album titles from the very first thing I did, they're all about the sun and the moon and the stars and the water and the sea and you know everything. And uh, so the, a distinctly non-urban metropolis approach. And even the studio we're in now, Oak Gable Studio, you know, the whole, every picture is of trees and we're completely surrounded by wood. And I always thought of myself as someone who would probably retire and become a woodsman somewhere deep in the country <laughs> with, a, with a dog and smoking a pipe. You know. yeah. um, but then there is this highly urban, highly organised, uh, amazingly accurate way of crafting and being an architect as a composer. Mm. So I went through my studies as a composer studying scores by Henri Dutilleux and Pierre Boulez and Takamitsu and Berio, and you go yeah. back further to Ravel and Debussy and Stravinsky, and you, you would look at these amazing scores and the level of detail and precision with nothing left to chance, and that was equally spellbinding for me. Mm. But yeah, I was listening to like Ornette Coleman or something like that, and, and as you say, there's a chaos, isn't there, in there. So I made it my business for, as I say, 25 years to... Well, I didn't even make it, it seemed to choose me, I suppose. How do I join these loves together? One of the things, I suppose, with the compositions, and you can hear it in different things, like there's an album I did called The Mystery, which has Chick career on two or three tracks, and that's got the Royal Northern Symphonia uh, Orchestra, sort of a 35-piece orchestra on it, playing. Uh, there's another one called Weather Walker, yeah, uh, which is more fantastic. recent, which is a bigger string orchestra. Yeah. And in every case, it's about creating compositions that have leeway within them. So it's like Swiss cheese, you know. Actually, it's the holes that make it useful. And you just have to be prepared as a composer who loves the control of writing everything down that the chances are the magic will happen in something one of the improvisers plays. Yeah. And it won't be. <laughs> you may have enabled it. Your music may have been the springboard but so, for example, Pablo Held, the wonderful yeah. German pianist, uh, a couple of the things he played were just so exquisite that I just remember thinking, well, I've got, we've already recorded the string orchestra, but that's not to say I can't do a little bit of editing and I might just hit mute so we've got piano on its own because I just don't want to lose that quality which yeah. was truly improvised that took the music in a different way which, in the best possible sense, beyond my control. When you get improvisers in to play your compositions, you want things to be beyond your control. Yeah, yeah. I course. think that's the secret of every composer should learn when they're writing for jazz musicians. You want those guys to come in and they will be the cat amongst the pigeons. Uh, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's oil and water, so it doesn't always work. It, 
uh, it should be a happy contrivance. But sometimes it feels like there's an improvised bit and then all of a sudden the band comes back in and it's, it feels like a different piece of music. And so the orchestrations of your latest stuff are huge, they are wonderful and they are deep and I, and I understand that point of precision. But uh, just as a sort of final point on this, if, if you listen to the new Crystal Silence, mm. which I suspect for, for most people listening is possibly the orchestration you're most famous for, the range, the creative range and improvised response from both Gary Burton and Chick Corea is stratospheric, right? It's, it's mm. off as well. This isn't to eulogise unnecessarily. It really is amazing music. Mm. You must sit there and go, ooh, or do you go and go, ah, does it go into places where you just never expected or you say, oh, I'm glad they did that because that's sort of what I wanted? One reason why Chick asked me, I think, is because he knew I was so familiar with both him and Gary and the way right. they approach. Um, one thing, their rhythm was so incredible together. Uh, one early thing that Chick said was, don't try and get the orchestra to groove with us. You know, you've got a, a fantastic orchestral percussionist, but they're 10 metres away from us. They're, they're not physically close enough to get that feel. Quite often there's that sort of coursing through the heart of a lot of Chick's music is a South American groove of some kind, sort of a Spanishery, you could say, or a, I don't know. Um, it's as, as great a swing player as he was. Uh, if you think of many of Chick's most famous pieces, they may have more of a rumba or a samba feel. You can't get an orchestra to do things like that um, from the rhythmical standpoint very easily in a live situation. If everyone wore headphones and it was an Abbey Road session and there was a click track like there is on the big movie scores, you can kind of do that. But uh, So it was a case of having a loose fitting suit for them both to wear yeah 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 uh, that they could just move around and do all their aerobic movements and then the suit would never tear and never rip but it would still make them look good and um, there were moments where the orchestra would just surge up and the, the weight of it would just drown them out and they would have a little interlude but then so many more times it's all about as Prokofiev would say transparency you need transparency so you'd never you know pizzicato thin quiet lines, um, simple rhythms, and then, of course, the soloists have a proper space. So it's a very three-dimensional. It's rather like you push the orchestra right forward into the audience faces and then you pull them right back again. Yeah. And that can sound very filmic, but that, I think that's what Chick wanted. You know, he, he wanted it to be, oh, come on, let's really use the orchestra. I don't want an expensive backdrop for us. We want more than that. Yeah. Take it away and mess around with the material a bit <laughs> well it is a thing of beauty if that's messing around the material long way that approach continue right we're on the home straight tim garland um so quick fire answer time um this is probably one of the hardest questions so what are your top three albums of all time <laughs> you should have asked Gosh. me that in advance um my top three well, what are you listening to right now Oh, What's well, your boat? let's see. I think that an album that comes up for me, and I haven't actually heard it for about two years, but it's funny that because we've just been talking about Chick and Gary, I can't even remember what the album's called. Is it called uh, New Duets? Right. And it's got Love Castle on it, and it's from the 90s, and it's a wonderful Chick and Gary duet album full of the most impressive duet playing I've ever heard. Wow. So I think that... So we'll, we'll lock that one. in. This That's doesn't have great. to be ranked, but that is in the okay. top three. 
I'm thinking also of a Joe Lovano album called From the Soul, again Ooh. from the 90s. Yeah. The sound of Joe's tenor from that time, from that moment on, my attitude to what a tenor could sound like changed. And that was after I knew and had met Joe. Yeah. But it was at that particular point. Uh, so I think those two albums. Um, now, we're talking of all time. I'm like, yeah, I yeah, could yeah, easily no. rattle off another seven or eight. Of course eight. you can. Um, but I think we'll stick to jazz because there are a load of classical albums out there um, which might just confuse the issue at the yeah, moment. So we'll certainly stick the Watford to Jazz, jazz Junction listener. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there's a, a John Coltrane album simply called Coltrane Sound. Right. And whenever I hear that, it's a bit like Blue Train. That's yeah. another favourite of mine. When I hear those, I can sing along with the solos. You know, that's, it's so much of your history is... It's kind of involved. And well, that's not bad going, Tim, considering that we haven't had any of those three albums mentioned in the past, and we've often had a lot of uh, duplicates and, and, and repetitions. So to, to pick a unique top three is not bad going. Now, of course, the Watford Jazz Junction listener will know what's coming next as the final question. So I'm going to introduce you to our house band. Where once there were seven, there now stand nine. It's the tightest, slickest, sickest band in podcast show business. Yes, up front right now, we have got Vi Red, James Morrison and Dizzy Gillespie. And in our back line, we've got Duke Ellington, Shirley Tete on guitar, bassists, Jaco Pistorius and Christian McBride, Roy Haynes on the drums, and Leanne Carroll on vocals and backup keys. Now, what, what Tim doesn't know I'm going to ask him to do is to say, which of those players would you like to give a break to? And who will you dep in in their place? Well, so who would I replace? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, what an amazing band in the beginning to say uh, that. So who did you say was on piano? Uh, we've got Duke Ellington. Duke. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So Duke would be just as happy fronting the band. So when he comes back from his, you know, going to the bathroom, he can stand at the front and, uh, and conduct. That gives an opening for a pianist. Strong play. So uh, I would say, why don't you give Jeffrey Keezer a chance to play the piano? With that wow. group... We know, never thought the Duke would be replaced, and here we go, Jeffrey yeah, Keezer, straight in. When Duke hasn't left the building, you see, when Duke's around, when he, uh, everyone is kowtowing to the fact that Duke's even in the vicinity of the stage. So he comes back and he conducts, and uh, I know that Keezer and uh, Christian know each other well, nice. and uh, I know that would be a really good sort of, you know... Uh, musical hookup between the two of them. Who did you say was on drums? Uh, we've got Roy Haynes, okay. the legend. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Listen, that's that's that. I'll be there on the front row. That's great. It's tidy, isn't it? Yeah. The, um, I think we had Jacko Pastorius throwing back in to add a bit of uh, a friction a couple of episodes <laughs> ago because everyone was thinking it was too smooth in the back. All right. So we'll leave him there just to keep us on our <laughs> on our toes. Well, Tim, thank you ever so much for being with us today and, ho and hosting me here in your fabulous studio. You can visit Tim's website uh, and get all the links you need to sign up. But uh, if you're really interested in the Encounter series, what's the best thing to do? Well, the quickest thing is to go to timgarland.com uh, where all of the latest things are there. But it's um, the winter encounters are on ViewStub, but now everything is on Vimeo. So uh, just look at going onto Vimeo and writing in Spring Encounters will take you straight there. Awesome, and, and, and I heartily recommend it. I, I've loved everything I've watched so far. Now, if you've liked what you've listened to today, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our valuable episodes. And if you want to know more about Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com 
Follow us on Twitter or Facebook or, as of this week, Instagram. Check me out. Um, or email us at jazzwatfordlive at gmail.com, but only to say nice things. Next time, I'm in conversation with my brother Jim for a mid-season review of all things Watford Jazz Junction. And don't forget to keep your ears fresh and always connect with something new. So it's goodbye to you, lovely listener. It's goodbye, Tim. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.